Welcome back to the VJ Sessions, where we feature the best DJs and producers from around the world. I'm your host, Darren, and right now I'm in the virtual studios all the way up here in Seattle, Washington, and sitting here in my studio while he's sitting in his studio in Los Angeles, we have none other than Amon Tobin. How's it going today? I'm well, thank you. Awesome. Well, it looks like you're in your studio there. It looks like a very peaceful, nice setting with your espresso? coffee i have got my coffee and um coffee and pjs and i'm ready for you coffee and pjs uh you know it's ironic that i tell people i work a lot from home doing what i do so my outfit is probably 90 percent of my business attire is a t-shirt and sweatpants <laughs> you know yeah i feel like i'm winning when i'm wearing pajamas somehow i feel like i've done something right yeah, you know, I mean, it's it's just it's just a comfortable lounge where I actually have specific sweatpants that I like to to buy. I don't, you know, the jogging sweatpants never work out for me. I have to have those big baggy, like lounge around the house, kind of cuddle in and watch a movie sweatpants. But I actually am doing a ton of work in them. Um, I just feel like I'm taking on the world on my own terms if I'm wearing pajamas. You know, they. I think pajamas should be normalized. I think they should be worn everywhere. You know, workplace, comfort wear, you know, get rid of the suit, ditch the khakis and get ready to just lounge. So, so recently you uh, released a, a, your, one of your latest albums, How Do You Live in September, 2021. You know, um, what is that? You've been on, you've actually had a wonderful journey. I was going over some of your stuff, looking through Wikipedia, just getting some information on you and, you know, all leading up to how do you live? And we'll be talking about the Nomark Club and a little bit about that. But what track on that album really stands out to you and, and why? Oh, man, I don't know. Uh, they're all my children, these these tracks. I love them all equally. So I, I don't have a, a specific tune. Um, and they're not even tunes. They're just experiments and uh, things that I've... I've built over time, and I've um, I have a I have a strange relationship with with the music I make because I I kind of um, I feel like they're things that get sort of born out of um, out of trying to find out things I don't know. So I'm always in a place where I don't fully understand what's going on because I think that's a very creative place to be. I try and maintain that as long as possible. And um, and so if I'm in a sort of uncomfortable place where I don't really have a very good handle on um, on the process itself, I feel like I'm in, a, I'm in a place of discovery, you know, which means I have to constantly try things that I haven't done and try and learn things that I don't know. And and it's uh, I guess that's that's what I like to do and, and you mentioned that the tracks are like your children and i quote you here saying you know this is talking about no mark is no mark is me admitting i'm at least five people maybe six each one has a different set of interests and objectives but we all share the same tastes and now the same label there are no side projects on no mark everything continues to develop in parallel and everything has its own identity but it also cross-pollinates and one thing informs the other. It's like a house for multiple personalities where everyone has their own room, but we all eat breakfast together. That being said, 
the aliases you have two fingers only child tyrant figueroa paperboy stone giants would those be kind of the parents and like you said earlier the music are your children well we could stretch this analogy out <laughs> as far as you like i all i mean is that um when you make something it's like it's like you make a little thing and then it goes and it exists and interacts with people outside of you. You know what I mean? Which I guess is kind of like kids, right? Like you make a thing and it goes out, has people have experiences with it, good or bad, hopefully mostly good. And then they, you know, it, it exists in a room when you're not in the room. Absolutely. Kind of, um, uh, an analogy I heard is, you know, in business, uh, somebody said to me a long time ago, they wanted a business where it made them money when they were asleep. And music, your music has that effect when you're not producing it and it's out there in the ether, it's out there in the world. People are listening to it and interacting with it. And you can't control what happens when you release that upon the world, um, which is awesome. You know, in, 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 you know, some of those effects you're going to see maybe come back quickly something might happen 20 years later where somebody comes and says it's i used to listen to that over and over and over again as a kid and it's stuck in my head and now my kids listen to it you know it's amazing it's true it's an it's amazing awesome. and you a real sense of purpose you know when you do stuff like that. absolutely um and you're best known for your use of audio manipulation techniques um you know where you take a source material and you transform it to produce a new sound What's the most trouble or the most dangerous situation you've ever placed yourself in to capture a sound to then later come back and use it and manipulate it and change it into your own? Oh, I used to make it sound so macho, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not risking my life out there to, to make sound if I can help it. I, it it's more, uh, all right. I did an album called Foley Room um quite a few years ago which was all about um which was all about recording unusual uh, material which i'd then build into music right? so it was foley recording it was a field recording and i did go to some sort of quite extraordinary lengths to find these sounds um i i can't say i was any I don't know if I was ever in any sort of physical danger. Hopefully, that wasn't. Um, but I did record lions and tigers, and um, I didn't fight any of them. I just recorded them. I recorded um, machinery. Uh, we went all over, all over the country, recording, you know, um, unusual things. We went to factories. We went to um, God, I'm thinking uh, like there was a strange sort of like radar, like a dish that was actually kind of uh, irresponsible. Come to think of it, because it, it was like a in a massive tower, it was some kind of I don't know what it was searching for, some sort of extraterrestrial life maybe. And and we we're in this giant tower, and this dish was like sixty foot long, and it would spin. And every time it span, we had to sort of duck down. So we're recording the sound and, you know, ducking the dish. So maybe that's, uh, that's, oh, we did have ants. There were some really, uh, ants and wasps. Actually, that was probably more 
if you want uh, extreme sound design um, stories. I, I uh, had this wasp's nest stuck to the top of my flat um, where I used to live in Montreal. And, and uh, I invited my friend uh, Patty uh, Schmidt round. This is great. Uh, she, she was working on the radio back then. Anyway, whatever. She came round and I put a giant uh, metal bowl over the wasp's nest and um, slid a 12-inch record behind and tried to sort of prise it away from the wall. And I could hear him getting really, really angry. So angry the bowl got hot. And um, so I sellotaped that round went in a taxi to my friend's studio because my friend had these amazing microphones these really like incredible microphones that could that could pick up you know insect noises and stuff and so i showed up with a bowl of bees um wasps um yeah so yeah i don't know i guess yeah we did a we did a lot of silly stuff like that but come to think of it now you ask maybe that was probably the the least careful thing I did. I, I, I just remember, you know, when I was reading up on that and how you would procure these sounds, um, somebody had recently, it was about a, maybe a year ago in my life, I saw it on Facebook or so one of the socials and they were talking about the noise that an MRI machine makes and how oh. the, that could like, they're like, I've been banging out tracks all day long. I go get an MRI and here's a number one hit or some joke was made about it, but the, by the sound of the vibration and the, the noise of the machine and how they wanted to get it. And when I had an MRI, not too long after that, I was talking with the technician in the room and he said, you know, one of the craziest things, I had a sound engineer that wanted to come in and put mics in the room and capture the noise of the MRI machines and then take right. it go use that in the studio. And I just thought that was, okay, that's unusual. I never would have thought about it, but you're taking these sounds and you're manipulating them and creating something new with them, which is just awesome. And that B story is pretty crazy. I can just imagine if they got loose in the studio. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, really, you can you can make stuff with anything, right? You don't. There's there's no need to do that kind of stuff. But it was it was interesting because I I had in my mind some ideas about instruments I could build, and that that's kind of what it was about. Like I was thinking. How could I make like uh, uh, the texture over a bass sound? Um, I was thinking specifically of a sort of um, I was thinking of like a baritone uh, guitar, like a surf guitar sound. And I was thinking, well, if I could get the texture of the bees um, over a different sound that I recorded from somewhere else, and I could layer these things together. I could make a kind of a, a very interesting sound, guitar sound out of that. So I was kind of like reverse engineering what sounds might be constituted of, what the different components of an instrument might be, and then abstracting that and thinking, well, I could get that from here, I could get that from there, and make a sort of a strange imagined version of that instrument from these different components. You see, so it was kind of an experiment in thinking, what are instruments really made of? Can I substitute these materials for other materials and create a sort of, you know, a, an imagined version of them? So, you know, the, the point of it is, is, is your own. 
but I don't think you need to go to any great lengths. I mean, people make amazing music with samples from Splice or, you know, whatever, and, and there's nothing wrong with any of that, you know. I don't think you need to go to the end of the earth. But it's fun, I think, at the, bo at the bottom of it. Um, I think that that's important, is to enjoy yourself and, and try things you haven't tried before. Mm -hmm. And you've worked on a number of projects, uh, including scoring films. And, um, you know, you've referenced David Lynch and the Coen brothers, Dario Argento and Roman Pulaski as some of your influencers uh, that you like. If you could pick anyone to direct and, and score with that you haven't worked with, uh, your dream of this is the person I want to work with, who would that be and why? Oh man, well, um, I would love to do something with Jodorowsky. He's, uh, he's still around and uh, I don't know, I think that would be incredible um, just because I'm such a fan and I have been for so long. And um, yeah, I guess he, he'd be my top pick. Awesome. And you've experimented in the past with mixing audio and video at the same time during some of your live performances. I was reading up and you had kind of a, this, this cube kind of video performance you would do. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Is that still something that you do currently or was that a project that, that is in the past and you've moved on or are you still looking to experiment with mixing live video and audio at the same time? Well, that... Um... That stage production was quite specific to a record I had that couldn't uh, be performed live. So I had to sort of figure out how to represent that music in a live setting. And I've always been kind of uh, resistant to an idea of a, of a sort of a performer on a laptop, you know. Um, I think, I mean, I came up with touring with Scratch DJs some of the best in the world, um, Kid Koala, and um, I did shows with um, Cuba, shows with uh, uh, all kinds of, I mean, just amazing DJs. So I have a huge respect for DJs. But the thing about um, performing your own music is that if it's not dance music, which this album wasn't, you can't really DJ it. And if it's, uh, if you don't have a band, you can't really perform it. So how'd you get around that? And my solution was to sort of put myself in a construction that I could then video map. And, um, and that started a kind of, um, I, it started quite a sort of arms race of, of uh, production at that time, um, and it was great. I, I feel like it had it was had a very big ripple effect, and a lot of people got a lot out of it. Um, and I made some great friends along the way, and we had some incredible, incredible experiences. We played in the most amazing venues in the world, and it was really something. But I don't think you can just keep doing the same thing over and over again. And I could have done that. I could have put that show, you know forever or in vegas being like elvis 
playing there until I was 90. Um, but I really think that, uh, I don't know, I'm just curious and that means I have to try and find different things to do. So I'm, I'm exploring, you know, that's what I'm doing now. Have you done any exploring into the VR or AR realm yet? Well, the problem is the technology for what I'd like to do isn't quite there yet. So it's it's either cost prohibitive or technologically too um, too impractical at the moment. But I feel like we're getting there. So. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think it's worth talking about things until you've figured them out properly. You know what I mean? Like when we did ISAM, which is a show you're talking about, I, ha I made sure I, I didn't really say anything about it until it was on the road, because a lot of people talk a lot of stuff and, and it doesn't really happen. So, you know, things like this, I'm really happy. Um, I have been really happy doing very intimate shows as well. That's the other thing is I kind of felt like with that, it got to a point where um, the shows were so big and there were so many people there and it was such a sort of disconnect from you and the audience. That I felt that there was a kind of, uh, it was starting to head in a direction I didn't particularly feel there was a lot of value in you know, where shows are becoming kind of like uh, like fairground rides, you know, and a lot of the, the, the shows actually that came after that did kind of prove that point. It's, it's uh, I feel like the, the connection between the artist and the audience is sometimes sacrificed by a sort of barrier of technology, you know, and, and I think people ultimately do sort of want an authentic experience with somebody on stage. They want to feel a certain amount of human vulnerability that they can relate to and something that's communicated directly. And as exciting as it can be to surround yourself with technology and, um, and the spectacle of it all, I think there's a price you pay in the intimacy of, a, you know, a communicated, uh, artistic expression so i've kind of been enjoying very small intimate shows in the last couple of years where just dj shows in little sweaty rooms with everyone just dancing and and that's the kind of thing i'd like to do i don't know um in a live setting if i could do a live show again i like the idea of doing it on a very small intimate scale Again, that's completely impractical, you know, because you can't make an amazing thing that only a handful of people can watch because it's too expensive. So there's lots of problems with, with that. With it, but, you know. What you said there about the intimate vibe uh, really resonated with me, especially going back, you know, almost 30 years when I was first starting a nightclub and the nightclub I would go to, you know, it maybe held 200, 250 people but we were very close to the DJ. I mean, you could see, you couldn't read what was on the record they were playing, but you could see the vinyl. You could see everything crystal clear as day. And as time went on and raves started to come out and the, the performer was put on that stage and then, you know, you're having thousands of people show up, um, 
you know, I kind of missed that intimate vibe. And over the course of time, I would start to go to smaller nightclubs where there might be 300 people, two, 300 people. And you could see, you could, you could go up and fist bump the DJ. You could say hi, you could like, thank you. And they could respond and look back at you. Whereas, you know, not that I'm against anything of these big major festivals, but I was just at EDC Vegas and they're that big. I mean, unless they're on a big screen, even if I would have had the VIP VIP experience, I still would have been so far away and feeling disconnected. Yes. I would have felt the music. I would have seen the, the presentation that was being done, which was beautiful. Uh, I hadn't been to anything that big um, before, but you know, it takes me back to what you were saying. There was a club that I used to go to here in Seattle called the Sea Sound Lounge. And I think the place maybe was 135 people tops, but you would have some of the top artists come through and their circuit tours were primarily based on that small intimate nightclub experience. So I can really relate with you Amin, on that of, of knowing what you're saying, but also understand your stage production can't fit in what you'd want to do to bring it into something like that. It's a real trade-off, and I think a lot of people can relate to that, you know, audience and artists, because it is a trade-off. There's nothing. I mean, it is exciting to be in a giant space with thousands of people and a massive production. It's an exciting thing. But um, my most memorable shows have been much, much smaller. Shows that I've been to as well as shows that I've performed in, the some of my favorite gigs in the last few years were um, where some guy came and played in people's living rooms. He was doing a tour of people's living rooms. And there's just something, yeah, something kind of, I don't know. Uh, it's just a different, it's a different thing. That's all. I'm not saying that one has to be the other. I, I just, I feel like there's a certain level of sort of bloated stage production where you start to feel like, I don't know, man, what the fuck is this? Am I at a show or am I in Disneyland or what's going on here? You know? Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. What would be considered your sweet spot for a show? Um, to the, where, that, where that line goes, I'm just no longer intimate. I feel disconnect or, you know, this is the amount of people I'd, I'd love to perform to, to know that I'm getting that level of connection that you look to, that you desire? Yeah, I mean, I, I've played everywhere from a couple of hundred people to uh, 80,000 people, right? And everywhere in between. So for me, my ideal is when it's, maybe I'd say 500 people at the most. If I can get between three and 500 people in a room, I feel... I don't know, like, uh, and the stage is low. You know, I'll, I'll often go in when I go and do a two fingers show, and I'll, I'll, there'll be a giant stage and a riser and all of that. And I'm always trying to get the stage production to put me on a low riser in front of the stage on the floor so that that thing you were talking about can happen and people can be around you and you can be in the party, you know. Um, but that doesn't often go over well because they lose uh, floor space and they can't sell as many tickets. And so there are practical things to think about. But yeah, I'd say that that would be my ideal. If I could get a really beautiful show to happen in a five, 600 person room, 
um, that would be uh, perfect. Well, well, we'll have to look into that later on. <laughs> mm -hmm. We'd love to have you up in Seattle sometime. Now, sitting behind you, it looks like a very amazing piece of gear, something maybe out of the Apollo moon landing or something. I'm not technically savvy. Uh, you're in your studio. You know, I see pictures of you on socials, you know, share a lot of hardware photos, but right. are you, you, you mix between hardware and software and mm -hmm. which do you really prefer as technology has gotten smaller, cheaper, more compact? Um, are you finding yourself gravitating more towards the software computer and shying away from hardware or do you still primarily stay hardware based? Um, I feel like there's merits to all of this stuff, you know, uh, um, I was very much just in software for a period of time. Um, um, really just DS, DSP based stuff, um, which is incredibly powerful, um, sometimes convenient, but, uh, hardware is a bit of a different experience it's a more sort of collaborative experience when you're making music because a lot of the hardware that i choose to use isn't very well behaved so it tends to it tends to suggest things to you gently that you may or may not um, appreciate at the time and uh, you sort of wrestle with it to get it to do what you want it to do and again, I mean, it goes back to the wasps thing or, you know, um, I really don't think the, the sort of most convenient route is necessarily the best route. I think that there's a rich experience in inconvenience in in sort of lumpy, unpredictable equipment because they there's life in those things. There's life in these things that you interact with. Um, and, uh, and I think that translates to the music to some level, but ultimately even selfishly, it's just a richer uh, experience to, to work with these things, you know? Yeah, you know, um, I was reading up, um, like I said, some information on you and it took me back to when my father first financed my brother's studio back in the wow. mid eighties. And, um, you know, he, he lavished a lot of toys on them that they didn't know how to play with. And here I am eight years old reading manuals on how to connect MIDI together and playing around, you know, some, some, uh, Yamaha products and, and Chroma Polaris keyboards, all this stuff he had just put in this here, here's a studio. And my brother's are like, hit a key they wouldn't know what to do they kind of didn't really know how to read or write at the time they're in their teens and uh right. here i am this eight-year-old kid reading the manuals and playing with you know something you mentioned you had a armstrad studio 104 track recorder and that right. in my memory we had the tascam four track recorder at that time uh and just playing with that and showing that you could put four tracks on a cassette tape would blow yeah. the kids' minds away and, and how yeah. you record different things into it. And I mean, I was playing with that kind of gear as a kid and I took my technical knowledge more towards a video side of things. 
um, right. and it became like the vi if, if my family looked at it, my brothers were the musicians, I was the video producer <laughs> playing right. with the video camera on the block. And I got into all things video. Um, you know, so we've seen that the advent of technology changing over time and technology moves very fast in, in music production land. If you could think of something that's not on the market today, but in your vision would be really amazing to be created, what would that be? Um, well, I guess there's a, there are things that kind of get near it. Um, and I think we'll get there eventually, but, uh, to sort of bypass the whole interface idea and have a, a direct representation of what you have in your mind, um, be able to, um, to sort of materialize, you know, I, I mean, I think that it's the interesting thing about software because software's job, I think, if it's doing it right, is to be as transparent as possible. So it doesn't get in the way of your, you know, your ideas to be as sort of functional and immediate as possible. Whereas hardware, I think serves a different purpose. There's a, there's a, like we were just saying, there's a charm and an interactive experience you're having with hardware that is not transparent at all. And if it was, it would be boring, you know? Um, so I think if you're going to go the DSP route, the idea of total transparency is uh, is the end game. Um, being able to think of a sound and have it materialize, uh, think of a musical phrase, and and uh, sort of sculpt it without having to click around and menu dive and all that shit. Um, so yeah, I don't know. Um, we'll see. I mean, I don't think we're that far off. There, there are things that that, that get pretty close to that already. Um, yeah. But to be honest, I don't know if I really want would want that. I like I say, I I like the inconvenience of things, and I like the the limitations of things too. I I'm a firm believer that creativity really is born out of limitations and sometimes you have to sort of build them synthetically you have to sort of you know invent limitations for yourself so that you can then creatively fight your way out of problems and and i think that's how uh that's how interesting things tend to happen so i don't know if it would necessarily be a useful thing to have that much uh direct uh contact with your music Totally understandable. Uh, and, uh, you know, we'll see how that pans out with the VR world experience and what people can create in there. Um, I've heard of people creating interactive worlds where you are your character, but you're manipulating sound in a virtual right. reality environment. It isn't necessarily your mind, but it is moving with what you're, how you're performing and that, how that's going to come out and what that'll change. And, and, and as far as performance goes and VR performances uh, in a setting like that, I'm going to another level of technology as well. Uh, I was looking in, and this is one question I'm asking a lot of artists as of late, because it's kind of a hot topic, is NFTs. And mm -hmm. you recently partnered with Catalog to release the album, How Do You Live, as a standalone audio NFT. 
to, you know, what is your thought on the future of NFTs and what does that mean for the music industry as a whole? Um, I think it's very interesting because, I mean, it, it, it needs a bit of a shift in, in a, a way of thinking. Um, a lot of the debate, you know, around NFTs is about value, you know, um, and what value does a digital asset really have compared to a physical asset. But I think a lot of those discussions are kind of redundant when you really consider that most of the things that have value at the moment are digital already. And really, it's it's more about sort of the, the attributed value, you know, that people, what people think is, is important to them. And um, I think that music's gone through a very rocky <laughs> road uh, over the last sort of decade where um, we went from um, having music that we could sustain by selling it to music which by definition was free because of you know the, the internet and and uh, and there were lots of great things that came out of that too but it could be it's possible that we're coming full circle in a sense to a stage where we can have maybe the best of both worlds, where we can have that access to all the things, but also um, have it become sustainable again too. Because the reality is that most people do want to be a part of supporting the things they want to hear more of. I don't really believe that everyone is just out for themselves and they're like, screw you, I'm going to take mine. And, you know, I think that people, given the option, would actually back the music that they love, you know, and uh, they want to participate in seeing that thing grow and live. Uh, but they're not really given that option at the moment. They've got, you know, Spotify and they've got places where basically artists are um it's not sustainable for artists right so i don't know if nfts are the answer or not but i think they provide an interesting platform really for um for making things that people would actually uh want to have whatever having means right they they want that nft maybe to put in their i don't know metaverse web3 gallery or maybe they want the bragging rights to have it on a on their social media who knows what the reason is what the but i think um i think it's worth exploring you know on that note, what we'll have to do is we'll have to catch up with you here. Uh, I know you have busy things to get to and uh, other things that I have got going on today. I really want to appreciate you and thank you for your time today of coming on the DJ sessions and letting us know about everything. That How You Live release, go to the Nomar Club, get it, amintobin.com, check it out. And um, thank you so much again for coming on the DJ sessions. We really appreciate you being on the show. Thanks for having me. Take care. You as well.
Don't forget, you can go to our website, thedjsessions.com. Find us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter. Hashtag the DJ Sessions. TDJS if you're so bold. This is Darren. And Almond Tobin. And that was Almond Tobin. On the DJ Sessions presents the virtual sessions. And we'll see you next time because on the DJ Sessions, the music never stops. <laughs>